Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We will be looking at verses 1 through 7. Again, page 953 in the Pew Bible. This is God's word. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's pray. Lord, focus our distracted hearts. Focus our hard hearts. Soften it to what you have to teach us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I've shared this with you before, but one of my family's favorite shows is America's Got Talent. Uh, It is just amazing to see how God has gifted some people to do some pretty spectacular things. This show is normally only on in the summer times, but because it is, uh, it's so popular, they decided to start having winter episodes of it, and it's called AGT Champions. And what they do is they take some of the best contestants from previous years and have them compete against one another. Well, this past week was finale, and one of the people, one of the final two contestants was this couple, and they were, their, their name is Duo Transcend. And they do this trapeze act way up in the, in the air, and they're doing flips, and they're dropping, and they're doing spins, and they're catching each other, and it's amazing. And they do the whole thing blindfolded, which makes it even more amazing. But as they, were, as they were sitting there as one of the final two contestants, they went back through their journey and they were showing the episode where they first came and um, came, came to try out, the tryouts for America's Got Talent. And as the husband of this duo watched the tape, he said this, he said, after, after they performed, he said, when I saw Simon standing, clapping, that was the moment that changed everything. If you've ever watched America's Got Talent or American Idol or, you know, Britain's Got Talent or Door County Has Talent, Simon Cowell is one of the judges on that show. And if you've ever seen it, you know that the other judges on the show are just there for aesthetics for the most part, right? Like it's interesting to hear what they say, but everybody wants to hear what Simon says because Simon is the ultimate talent scout. He's the ultimate judge on that show. And so if Simon says you are great, you're great. But as Simon says, you're trash, you're trash. These people are communicating what so many people have felt as they've walked across the stage. Yeah, there's, there's many judges, but really there's only one judge that matters. 
I want to ask you a question today. A question that I don't know if you have considered before. But it's a question that might be the most important question you're ever asked, which I know sounds extreme, but I think it might be true. A question that most likely is the most important question you will hear this year, probably. And the question is simply this. If you're, if you're honest with yourself, whose approval are you seeking? Whose approval are you seeking? Who do you long to notice what you're doing? To think you are special? Who do you want to say to you, good job, well done, I'm proud of you? If you're painfully honest, and with, yourself, honest with yourself and with God, whose approval are you seeking? And how does that impact your life? Given my conversations with you over the past 10 years and knowing my own story, my guess is that for many of you, that person is your father. Sadly, you have never or rarely heard your dad say, I am proud of you. I love you. Well done. Good job. And so you spend your entire life trying to prove to your dad that you are worthy of his love. For others, you long for the approval of your mother. For others, you long for the approval of other kids at your school or that cute girl or that cute boy or your teammates or your neighbors. Others might be longing for the approval of their husband or their wife that once they would say, I cherish you, I love you, I delight in you, and they mean it. Some of you are seeking the approval of your boss, maybe even your pastor. And yet other of you are just simply seeking approval from yourself. You hate who you are. You don't accept who you are. And you long to love yourself, not in a selfish way, but in a human way. Whose approval do you seek? Whose judgment about your goodness and your value and your worth are you waiting for? Before we dig into today's passage, we have to get one thing really clear about this passage, and it's indicated by the title in your bulletin, but it's so important that we understand this. Otherwise, we'll com completely misread this passage. This passage is about the judgment of Christians, not of non-Christians. Uh, throughout scriptures, a lot of times when it talks about the judgment of God, it's talking about the judgment of people that do not trust in Christ, that they are judged and they are, they are punished for their sin and for not trusting in Christ. That's not what today's passage is about. Today's passage is about the judgment that awaits Christians, which I know sounds bizarre, but just wait, you'll see, okay? And as we look at this passage, there's fair, three very important questions for the Christian, Christian as we ask, as we consider this topic. The first is, who will judge you? The second is, how will you be judged? And the third is, why will you be judged? And I'm telling you, all three answers might be a surprise to you. First, the question is, who will judge you? Look at verse three with me. Paul says, but with me, it is a very small thing 
that I should be judged by you or by any human court. According to verse three, who judges you? Everybody judges you. (laughs) I don't mean to give you a panic attack, but everybody is evaluating you all the time. They're evaluating whether you are likable, whether you are attractive, whether you are talented. They are evaluating whether you are worthy of their time and their energy and attention. Everybody is evaluating you all the time. And you know how we know this? Because we are evaluating everybody all the time, right? I mean, even right now, probably this morning, you're evaluating, did I like the music? Did I like my coffee? Do I like this sermon? Do I like this passage? Do I like this church? You're constantly evaluating things. You're evaluating how your kids acted this morning. You're evaluating how your family acted this week. We're constantly evaluating every person. And every person is evaluating and judging us. This can be suffocating, right? It can be terrifying. The apostle gets this. You know, we've mentioned this before, but in Corinth, the orators, like preachers, were celebrities. There was no TV, no radio, no social media, no Xbox. And so the entertainment were these speakers that would come in. And so people would evaluate these speakers. Were they, were they smooth in their transition? Were they entertaining? Did they have powerful illustrations? Were they sophisticated in their explanation? The Corinthians have been evaluating Paul's preaching and Paul's ministry, and many of them have determined Paul is not very good at what he does. His preaching was not very eloquent. It was a bit elementary. A lot of people preferred Apollos, Another preacher who is very intellectual and a fantastic speaker. Others preferred Peter because Peter may have been abrasive, but he'd get to the point. And yet Paul says this in verse 3, but with me it is a very small or of least important thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Notice here, Paul does not say, I do not care what other people think. That's not what he says. Rather, Paul is saying is that the judgment and evaluation of other people is very small to him. It does not take up too much space in his head and in his heart. It is of least importance of all the judgments. But it's still there. And so let me ask you another probing question. How much do you care about what other people think about you? Is it a big thing in your head and in your heart or a small thing? As you got ready for church this morning and looked in the mirror, are you thinking, what are other people going to think of the way I look? You know, I've, I've asked a number of you to come up front and to share your testimony, share your ministry. And the common response I get from people is, oh, I hate public speaking. And you know what? I don't like public speaking all that much either. And the rest of the world doesn't either. Matter of fact, people's number one fear is public speaking. Jerry Seinfeld has a funny bit on this. He says, people's number one fear is public speaking. Their number two fear is death. And so what they're saying is they would rather be in the casket than conducting the funeral. People hate public speaking. And the question is, why do we hate public speaking? It's because we know that if we get up 
and speak, we are on full display for other people to judge us. And again, we know they're going to make an assessment about our intelligence, our likableness, our attractiveness. And the reason we know that they will make this assessment, this judgment of us, is because we know we do that with everybody else. We cringe at public speaking because the judgment of others is often not a very small thing in our hearts and in our minds, but it is a very big thing. It is too big of a thing, and sometimes it is an all-consuming thing because we have all believed the lie that our self-worth is determined by other people's opinions. Let me say that again. We have all believed the lie to one degree or another that our value and self-worth is determined by what other people think of us. But the gospel allows us to shrink, to shrink the judgment of others in our heart and in our life. How wonderful would it be to say with Paul in a clear conscience, it is a very small thing that I be judged by you. We are not to find our value in the judgment of others. Paul goes on, verse three, and he says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Not only are we afraid that we don't live up to other people's standards, we are afraid that we don't live up to our own standards. To be honest with you, um, I don't go back and listen to my old sermons because I hate listening to my old sermons. I cringe listening to my old sermons. Have you ever listened to your voice on your answer machine for like 10 seconds? You're like, oh man, I sound like that. Imagine doing it for 40 minutes. It's painful, right? We often are our own worst critics. As a matter of fact, we are often more critical of ourselves than God is critical of us. Many times there's nothing that we can do or little that we can do that can be good enough for us. And so Paul says, I don't even judge myself. And then verse four, he says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. In other words, he has a clear conscience. He has no besetting sin. He's not living in sin. He's pursuing Christ. He says, but I am not thereby acquitted, meaning I'm not declared innocent, even though I'm not aware. I love what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, just because I'm not aware of ongoing sin in my life doesn't mean there isn't ongoing sin in my life. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I mean, there's blind spots. We all have blind spots. And that's why we need godly friends to come and give us godly feedback and critique and judgment towards us. As a matter of fact, one of the signs that men's judgment and critique of you is small is that you can receive it from them, Right? I mean, if their critique of you, if their judgment of you, if their evaluation of you is big in your heart and big in your heads, then if they give you any feedback, any critique, you are crushed by it. But we are not to make the critique of others big in our hearts and our heads. We are not to make the critique of ourselves big in our hearts and in our heads. And so whose critique should be big? If 1% of the bucket is filled with the critique of others, if 1% of the bucket is filled with the critique of ourselves, who takes up the other 98% of the bucket? Well, we're in church, so you probably know what the answer is, but let's read it anyways. Verse four, 
For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Who judges you? Everybody judges you. But there is one who matters most. The ultimate judgment is God's. You see, God actually fills 100% of the cup and our judgment and the judgment of others only matters when it is aligned with God's judgment, which we know from his word. Let me illustrate this way. I don't know if it will be helpful, but I'll try. So when you study for ordination uh, in our denomination, it's a pretty traumatic event. You have to study a lot of different things, Bible, which is good, theology, which is good, sacraments, Greek, Hebrew, things like that. Um, Spencer Tom's going through it. Pray for him. If he seems traumatized, that's why. But, but you're going through this and you're trying to prepare and you have this final examination before this committee called Candidates and Credentials Committee, which Pastor Jonathan's in charge of. So it's partially his fault. But anyways, and so, um, so, so you're studying and you're preparing. And what you do during the process is you grab other people and say, hey, would you quiz me in theology or Bible or sacraments or whatever it would be. And so you'll grab your, you know, your wife or you'll grab your friend or you'll grab another pastor and you'll say, all right, ask me these questions, okay? And so they'll, they'll do the flashcards or if they're smart enough, they'll just do it from memory and, and they'll make judgments. That's wrong. That's right. That's good. You might need to improve here, right? And, and so the thing is, is that you hear their judgment, you receive their feedback. It is helpful, but ultimately you don't care about their judgment, right? What are you caring about is the judgment of the candidates and credentials committee that's coming down the road. And you're hearing their judgment so that you could get the approval of the judgment of the ones that are to come yet. In the same way as we hear the critique of others and judgment of others on our lives, we can receive it because ultimately they do not define our value, but they are showing us how we can grow in godliness as we approach the judgment of the one who matters most. Who judges us? Everybody judges us. Other people's judgment, though, must be small to us. Our judgment must be small to us. God's judgment must be large in our hearts and in our minds so that when judgment comes to the Christian, we may be found faithful to our great and awesome God. Now, how will you be judged? If the Lord's going to come, and he's going to judge Christians. Again, he's not judging you to send you to hell or anything like that. But if he's judging and evaluating your life, how is he going to judge you? What is the basis of those judgments? Is it, is it based on how much you know? Is it based on how much you achieve? What is the basis for God's judgment on your life? This is important for Christians to know, okay? And there are three things that Paul highlights here. First, God judges us by what you do. Verse one, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We covered this last week, but this term servant for servant of Christ means under oarsman, the person on the bottom of the ship rowing the boat. I think of that scene in Ben-Hur where he is rowing the boat in the bottom of the ship. And ultimately we are not called to be servants of other men or servants of men's opinions or servants even of our own agendas or our own passions, but we are servants under oarsmen of Christ. Servants of Christ, and he says stewards of the marvelous mysteries of God. What does he mean by mystery? Well, when you look in the Bible, what the word mystery means in most contexts is that it is something, it is the truth of God. It is the word of God, something wonderful that God knows that, that we don't have access to because of our 
finiteness, our limitedness, or because of our sinfulness, or cloudiness, or confusion. We, we can't understand it. But the mystery is revealed to us by God, according to his grace, through the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 3. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Spirit reveals the glorious mysteries of God. We saw this actually last fall when we were studying Daniel. Do you remember? The king had a dream. God gave him a dream and he couldn't understand the dream. And so he's finding someone to translate the dream. And Daniel comes and he answers the king and says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known. And so here we are given that glorious task again to disperse of the marvelous mysteries of God, which includes the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also includes the sweet wonder of God's law. It includes both the New Testament and the Old Testament. It includes all of the story of God's redemption, past, present, and future. We are called to steward these treasures generously, liberally, and excessively. He goes on in verse two and says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This truth is one of the most freeing things God has ever pressed upon my heart and continues to press upon my heart. God is not going to judge my fathering based on my kids' academic success or based on my kids' athletic success. A matter of fact, he's not even going to judge my fathering based on my kids' spiritual success. God is only going to judge based on whether or not I was faithful. Faithful to love them, to shepherd them, and to steward the mysteries of God amongst them. Furthermore, God is not going to judge me as a pastor based on how big our church is or how many people come to know Christ. He's going to judge it based on the fact of, was I faithful to share the mysteries of God with all that he brought into my path? You know, this world measures success by numbers, right? GPA, ACT, points per game, income level. God does not measure success by numbers. He measures success by faithfulness. God judges us by what we do. Are we faithful to serve Christ by stewarding the mysteries of God, no matter what our vocation is? Second question here is, um, God, God judges us also not only by what we do, but why you do what we do, what you do. Verse five, it says, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, that is our secret deeds, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. God does not just care about what you do. God cares about why you do it. He cares about the motivations of your heart. That's why when Jesus is asked, what is the most important command? He said it is to love. That's motivation. That's the why. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The motivation is love. And then he says, the rest of the commandments hang on these two things. Our motivation is love. And so God doesn't just care about what we do, but why we do it. 
God doesn't just want our obedience. He wants our heart. You know, ladies, whether you're married or not, I think you'll understand this illustration. I think we all will. Imagine it's your anniversary and your husband comes home with a dozen roses and, and a nice, nice box, nicely wrapped box. And they bring it in and, and you see the roses and you start to smile and you start to warm. And then you open the box and you notice inside of it are those pair of earrings that you wanted so much for so long. And he got them for you. And, and so you take these and you're just overwhelmed with appreciation. And you say to your husband, oh, I love you. Thank you so much. And your husband turns back to you and he says, you know what? I got this for you because if I didn't, I figured I'd be in trouble. How would you like that response? I did this because I had to. You don't just want him to do the right thing. You want his heart. God is no different. God doesn't want you just to do the right thing. He wants your heart in the midst of doing the right thing. I think church is such a great example. You know, there, there are many times where, where our motivation to come to church isn't all the way there. Like maybe we just don't want to come to church for whatever reason it is, right? And, but God says it's good. It's good for us to gather together, to hear from him, to worship him, to, to, to fellowship with one another. And we know this is a good thing that we are called to do. But many times we come and we're like, I really don't want to go. But, you know, or, or, or sometimes we were like, you know, if my, if my heart's not there, I'm just not going to go, right? Which, which doesn't work for school. So, you know, kids, if you say, you know, I just really, my heart's not in school today. Can I stay home, right? Like the parents will say, no, get to school and change your attitude, right? I mean, there are many mornings where I'm like, man, I don't really want to go to church. Like, I know, I'm the pastor. I'm not supposed to say that. But there are many, and I'm praying on the way, Lord, change my heart, right? And so we obey and pray for the heart to follow, okay? If we're just like, if we wait for perfect motivation, we'll never come to church, right? And then we just compound our sin. God doesn't just want our obedience. He wants our heart. Finally, so God judges us based on what we do, servants and stewards, faithful, by why we do what we do out of love for God and others. And finally, he judges us based on how we do what we do. Look at verse six. He says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written when that term, what is written, comes up in Scripture, at least to my knowledge, it always refers to the Old Testament, to the Scriptures. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, listen, if you want to evaluate my ministry, if I want to evaluate my ministry, I must make sure that I do not do it based on the opinions and wisdom of the world, but on the wisdom and the word of God, which is folly to the world around us. Don't evaluate my ministry, Paul says, by how clever it is, how funny it is, how short my sermons are, how sophisticated it is. That goes beyond the scriptures. It goes beyond what is written. It goes beyond how God judges my ministry. Let me give you an example of this. In Hebrews 3, 5, it says, now Moses, this is God, God's word. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken. That's God's assessment of Moses' ministry, that he was faithful to speak. But you know what? Moses was a bad speaker. 
In Exodus 4, Moses actually says to God, he says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. If Moses was our guest preacher this morning, you would come in and you would have very high expectations and it would probably be completely underwhelming because Moses was not a good public speaker. And yet God says Moses was a faithful testifier of God. Through Moses's faithfulness, plagues came down on their oppressors. Through the faithfulness of Moses's speaking, the waters were parted. Through the faithfulness of Moses's speaking, the people of God were released from their bondage. Not because Moses was persuasive or funny, or sophisticated, but because he was faithful to proclaim the message that God had given to him. Paul continues to go on, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but it relates to this. He says, again, verse six, learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up or become arrogant in favor of one against another. What Paul is saying here is, listen, if you're going to use extra biblical means of evaluating one another, it's going to make you big headed. It's going to make you arrogant. Because you're using all these other things to, to boast in these things to say, look, I'm a better speaker than Paul is. Or my, my preacher's a better preacher than Paul is. And you're going to get arrogant about it. And so he undercuts that arrogance in verse 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Because their evaluation goes beyond scriptures into giftedness, Paul is saying, listen, you cannot boast in that because that talent is a gift from God. Let me give you an example. In the NBA, there is this guy named Taco Fall, which is really fun to say, um, but he's actually a pretty fun, cool, likable guy there. I made judgments. But anyways, Taco is seven feet, six inches tall. Taco can stand on the floor and reach up and not only touch the rim, he can grab the rim. He can use this as stretching exercises. That's how tall he is. And what's so funny is that when Taco goes down the cart and he slams the basketball, the crowd goes crazy. He is so amazing. No, he's not. He's seven feet, six inches tall. Right, like he should be able to dunk the basketball. He doesn't get any credit for this. This is how God made him. Are you a good singer, a good coach, a good businessman, a good mom, a good fill in the blank? Because we all have talents. We can't boast in those. They were a gift from God. It should humble us. And so Paul is saying here, just to recap, who will judge us? Everyone, but only God's judgment matters. How will we be judged by God? By what we do if we are faithful servants of Christ, stewarding the mysteries of God. By what we do with pure motives, loving God and loving others, and by how we do it. Do we do it according to God's word, humbly knowing that God has given us the gifts? The final question, and really probably the most important, is why will you be judged? You know, when we look at this list and we see how God is going to judge us, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm in a whole lot of trouble. If God is going to judge how often 
Um, I see him as a one true judge and, and, and the opinions of others are small in my head and in my heart. I'm in a whole lot of trouble. If God is going to judge the motivations of my heart, I'm even more trouble. I'm not even sure if I've had a completely pure motivation for anything I've ever done in my entire life. I'm in a whole lot of trouble. If God is going to judge whether I live consistent with his word day in and day out, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. And so the question of why, why is God making this judgment? Why is God making this evaluation of Christians is extremely important for us to understand. Is he doing it so that he can squash us like a bug because we are failures? I love this verse, verse five. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart and then listen closely. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That third to last word is very easy to misread. It's very easy to read it as condemnation, isn't it? As a matter of fact, I think in our small group when we read this out loud, we read it, condemnation, that each one will receive his condemnation from God. Not only does, does, does condemnation look like the word commendation, but I think we expect the word condemnation, don't we? Don't we expect that if God is going to evaluate our lives, if he's going to judge Christian, that's what's going to happen, is that God is going to condemn us? Isn't that what we expect? But that's not what it says. It says that each one will receive his commendation from God. Can we take a minute to rejoice of what is not in this verse? How glorious is it that there is no condemnation in this verse for Christians? There is no condemnation for Christians in general. You probably know the verse Romans 8, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why not? Because God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh upon Jesus. John 3, 16, you're probably familiar with. What about 17 and 18? It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. There's the word. But in order that the world might be saved through him. And then listen to this very closely. Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, even with all of your failures, and there are many, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in Jesus, even with all of their good works, is condemned already. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, if you trust in his substitutionary work on the cross, there is not a drip of condemnation left for you. Because God has taken on all of your sin and Jesus has taken on all of the condemnation of God that you deserve. And so now, listen closely, for the Christian, for those who are in Christ, the judgment of God has come, but there is no condemnation left for you. There is only commendation left for you. And so what is commendation? Well, the simple definition is it is an award involving special praise, an award involving special praise. Some of you in your Bibles in verse five have it translated this way, that at that time, each will receive their praise from God. If I told you that God was gonna praise you, would you call me a heretic? I probably would, but that's what Paul says. Paul says there will be a commendation. There will be a praise from God 
towards his children. I mean, to give you some examples of this, when I was in elementary school, I'm a little behind here, sorry, but when I was in elementary school, we had sticker books, okay? And if we did something good or if we acted right, we would get a sticker. If we did really good, they'd give us a scratch and sniff sticker. It was wonderful, right? This was a commendation from the teacher. Some students' books were full of more commendations than other students' books, but all of us were her students. All of us were in her class. Think about the National Medal of Honor, which, which is typically given by a United States president. You can probably imagine a soldier backed up to the president and looping that thick purple rope around him with that medal. And, and it's given to someone who demonstrated extraordinary bravery in combat, risked their own life, and went above and beyond the call of duty. This is a medal of commendation to recognize their efforts and their sacrifice. But you know what? They are no more a citizen or no less a citizen than we are. You have probably received commendations in sports and work and school. And it's nice to be recognized, isn't it? I mean, can we, it's nice to be recognized. When you work hard, when you sacrifice, when you go above and beyond, make no mistake, we are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, not by good works at all. But what Paul is telling us here, Christian, is that our good works matter. Our good works do not go unnoticed by God. Jesus says this over and over again. He says, if you are persecuted by others, if you give to the needy, if you fast without others knowing, you will be rewarded. Just last chapter in 1 Corinthians 3.8, Paul said, each will receive his wages according to his labor. You know, we love to talk about the motivation for obedience being love for God, which is completely true. But I'll tell you what, I need as much motivation for obedience as I can get. And what Paul gives us here is a motivation for obedience is an accommodation that God gives to those who trust and follow Christ faithfully. And so when you fight the good fight to put besetting sin to death, God notices. When you take a step of faith to awkwardly share the good news of Jesus with others, God notices. When you feed the hungry, care for the sick, and visit the prisoner, God notices. When you befriend the lonely, love the difficult, and cherish the poor, no one else may notice. But God notices and stands ready to commend you. There is no condemnation left for the Christian, but there is commendation from God. Your earthly father may have never commended you. Your earthly boss may never commend you. Your earthly community may never commend you, but your heavenly father notices. He commends you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me end with this. Try to go quick. When I was little, I was in peewee football, and one of the things we did for warm-ups were these things called leg lifts. And basically, you just laid flat on the ground, um, and you would hold on to your face mask, and you'd lift your feet about two inches off the ground. Okay, not a foot, because that'd be too easy. About two inches off the ground, and it would build up your abs, and it was, it was hard. It was hard work. And, uh, and so the coach would, would walk up and down the rows, and, you know, he'd say, up, 
and then down, and we would follow his commands, and we would do what he'd tell us to do. But, but it must have been comical if you were looking, like, from a hillside off in the distance, because whenever the coach would be walking up, to, when they were, whenever he was faced towards you, you'd have your legs up. But as soon as he'd walk past you, you'd put your de- legs down for a little bit just to get kind of a rest. And so he walks this way, and the entire team on this side has their legs up. The entire team back here does it, and then he turns around, and it flip-flops, right? Because it matters which way he is facing, Within Christianity, there is this term called quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. It reminds us that all of us at all times live before the face of God. He never turns his back on us. Whether we acknowledge it or not, God always sees everything. And he does it not to condemn us, but to commend us. Whose approval are you looking for? Whose approval are you longing for? Live for an audience of one. Live for the audience of a gracious God who is merciful and loving and seeks to pour out his blessings upon you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that there is no condemnation in Christ. Thank you there's no condemnation in verse five. Thank you that there is only commendation, God. Lord, may this drive us further and deeper in obedience, joyful obedience to you, knowing, God, that you seek to bless us and to reward us with your grace. Lord, if there's any way in us which is not honoring to you, Give us the courage to put it to death for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.